Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the We Ginger Dugcast with me, Paul Kavanagh. It's Friday the 20th of September today and as usual I'm accompanied with Callum Baird, Hello. editor of The National. And today we have a very special guest, we have Philippa Whitford, the SNP's health spokesperson. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to have you. The only reason we asked you is because we knew you talk a lot, and then we don't have to do any work. We what good value for exactly, money? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm just going to get on with a couple of things. While yeah, he's actually Callum's eating his dinner. <laughs> so yeah, so what's going on at Westminster? Uh, well, right now, nothing uh, because it's shut. Uh, obviously, the main thing just across Parliament Square is the Supreme Court. So that's uh-huh. actually where the action's been. Uh, this week and we await to see their decision which hopefully we can expect in the first half of next week. So have you got any rumours? Have you heard anything about what's happening? Uh, well obviously Joanna who has led this, I'm one of the petitioners in it, there's about 78 MPs who are co-petitioners in the case but obviously led by Joanna and was saying that she's actually a bit hopeful that they will support the ruling in the Court of Session in Edinburgh and therefore turn down the government's appeal against that. But, um, you know, it's hard to predict. So do you think what would happen, supposing it it, it was found to be unlawful, would Parliament impeach Boris Johnson? I'm not really sure about what the legal standing around impeachment is in in, in Westminster. I think it would be. (laughs) I think it's more um, around what then would be the timescale to be recalled. Um, I've heard or read rather comments about that. You know, even if they found this prorogation had been unlawful um, because the Queen was misled, that they may still decide that the length and timing of a prorogation are under the Prime Minister's control and that therefore they could simply say, OK, we're ending this prorogation and we're starting a new one where we're going to tell the Queen that we're proroguing Parliament because they're a blooming nuisance and we have no majority. And that would then be a lawful prorogation. So there's there's kind of a range it's of, kind of outcomes. slap in the face for democracy though, isn't it? Well, I think... That's the concern, and I think that's what makes it probably one of the biggest cases the Supreme Court has ever had to rule on, because if they rule completely against the government, then you've got a whole clash between the executive and the judiciary, and there's going to be lots of fireworks around that. But equally, if you say, yep, it's nothing to do with us, which is one of the government's cases, that the judiciary should have nothing to do with it, you're basically saying that any prime minister, including a minority government could just shut Parliament down any time they felt like it. Because I mean, that's, that's quite yeah, dangerous. That is it. I mean, basically, because that's basically what Boris Johnson has done. I mean, he has closed down Parliament because he doesn't have a majority, because he doesn't Absolutely. want scrutiny. I mean, it was only Parliament was only open for what, four or five days. Uh, yeah, and and that short space of time, he we got lost, the Ben Act through. Exactly, got the Ben Act through. He lost every single vote. Uh, he wasn't able to get his early general election, you know. Um, six out of six and, votes. And if that was able, Parliament was able to do that in a, a few short days, then just think what they could do. I mean, obviously the they are trying weeks. to make out that they're only really taking, you know, one week away from us because of the conference recess uh, for the party conferences. But in actual fact, every recess has to be positively voted for by MPs and we had not yet had that vote and actually um, there was quite broad agreement 
fairly widely uh, across Parliament, although I don't know if it would have been a majority, that we wouldn't have had that conference that it, recess, that it would have been ridiculous right. to have been having three weeks of recess just for party conferences. So in actual fact, they weren't just taking away six or seven working days, they were taking away five weeks. And at this time, that's just bizarre. And, you know, we're literally back two weeks before, uh, before Brexit Day. So what do you think is going to happen? Oh, dear God, if I knew that, I'd be putting money on it. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of different things. I mean, there was a rumour before the summer that uh, Boris Johnson would be looking for a Northern Ireland-only backstop. Yeah, there's been a lot so of that reports of that. So kind of the GB could, could leave the customs union and single market and do their own thing. Um, and obviously that is what was on the table in December 17. And then obviously Arlene Foster intervened exactly. and said, no yeah. way. Um, but then Boris came out in his original speeches where I won't even talk to anyone unless the whole backstop is gone. So I'm sure Europe would be up for an all-Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland-only backstop border in the Irish Sea kind of solution because that was their first proposal. It was the UK right. that asked to widen it. Um, but the idea that there will be no backstop in it, I think, is for the so, birds. But would you have the votes to get that through? Because well, obviously, I mean, the DUP would be opposed to it. The yeah, e the question the is whether the, the question well. is whether he throws the DUP overboard in the hope that he'll get maybe about twenty-five Labour MPs who are in Leave constituencies who would support it, who want a deal, uh -huh. um, and whether he manages to threaten the ERG who say they. You know, even if you remove the backstop, they're still not happy. Um, obviously, he could threaten to remove the whip from them, and with a general election inevitable later this year, then they would not have the be able to stand as Conservatives, have the Conservative Party machinery. Whether whether that threat would be enough to bring them to heel, no idea. I mean, frankly, I may work there. <laughs> like because everybody else, bit, I have know, like, no idea. And, and I think Boris has been changing his mind. He's not a man for detail. And I think he has been grabbing or big ideas and, and thinking, we'll just do that, and then discovering, OK, that's not really going to work, yeah. so we'll just do this over he, here. He definitely gives the impression of a, of a Prime Minister who's just making it all up as he goes along. Yes, yes. I don't know. think he's a man who reads detail, reads briefs, listens to experts or anything like that. So, do you think he's well still know. going to be Prime Minister in a few weeks' time? Though? Unfortunately, I think he will be, yes. Yeah. I think he will be. How prepared, is, uh, how prepared are you and how prepared are the SNP for an election? Because I think we're going to get one probably this year, aren't we? So well, I think, I mean, much to be honest, I've been talking on. about the inevitability of an election since last autumn. Mm. Uh, obviously, since... Uh, this summer and and particularly now, it's it's very clear that it's coming. Um, you know, we're kind of in bring it on territory. The the polls look positive for us. Um, you know, even people who voted no, even people who might normally vote conservative, are not fans of Boris Johnson yeah. and things like proroguing Parliament. I think he thought the public wouldn't even be aware of that. That that would be a small print thing and a word they'd never heard of. I don't think he recognise the mm -hmm. reaction that would come and how much people right across the political spectrum would be shocked at, at what he's doing. Yeah. So, I mean, we're predicted to do quite well, exactly how well you, you know, you can't be complacent, you can't make assumptions, you've got to get out and do the work. So we're definitely getting ready. We can't say when it's coming, but it's absolutely coming.
what would be the message of that campaign? Because that's, that's something that's been sort of yeah. discussed, isn't it? Just what I wanted to ask. <laughs> that's you interrupting him again. Sorry, my mum was complaining that I'll keep interrupting Carl. <laughs> I know, my wife was complaining as well. Yeah, I know. Okay. Just shut well, up, I'll shut up. Both of you can go <laughs> home and apologise. Um, basically, I think it's quite clear, we're not looking for a mandate. We already have the mandate from the 2016 manifesto, but it should be our choice. You know, it's Scotland's future, it should be in Scotland's hands so they should not Westminster should not have the right to stop us now the last time the Scottish government asked for section 30 was back in spring spring 2017 Uh, they had put forward the first compromise for Brexit which was Scotland's place in Europe uh, just before Christmas 2016 and that would actually have solved the Irish border question by keeping Northern Ireland and Scotland in a single market and customs union, government flung it out and were not willing to consider it. And therefore, the First Minister moved on to, right, OK, you know, we want to have an independence referendum. And of course, uh, Theresa May countered that with, with an election. We have not formally asked for one since. So if we do well, if we're up in the high 40s or even over 50 MPs going back, what they have kept saying, oh, there's no interest in an independence referendum, there's no support for it, that will be knocked out of the park. Mm -hmm. And I think it will be important that we are going back and demanding a Section 30 at that point. And that's what we're down there to do. And we should just go on and on and on about it until they get so annoyed that they just say, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people said, you know, a lot of people within the independence movement felt that the SNP fought a bad campaign in 2017. Well, we were completely caught on the hop. I mean, it was a snap election in the true sense. We were fighting the council elections and we then had five weeks to to the other ones. So we didn't have funds. uh, We didn't have materials prepared. Uh, You know, a lot of what got used was things from the 2016 uh-huh. Uh, Scottish Parliament election, so it was all not very clear what we were yeah. what we were fighting. Because about, what, what a lot of people have said to me, you know, in various yes groups and SNP groups that I've been visiting, that yes voters weren't motivated to go out and vote, oh, absolutely, and the SNP vote collapsed. So yep. that was why there wasn't so much there was a surge to the Tories. It was that. Yes, no voters were motivated to go out and vote because they were given, you know, that Ruth Davison was given a very clear message of vote for me to oppose independence, whereas the SNP weren't giving a strong message on independence. I, so I, yes, I would agree that I would agree vote. with that absolutely. So I'm just um, hoping that you're not going to repeat the same mistake. No, I, I don't <laughs> think so. Um, you know, absolutely. You know, Ruth Davidson was very clear. You know, this is a no to Indy too. I mean, frankly, that's they fought every single campaign. Uh, Holyrood Council, everything on that now for years. I think they just keep recycling the same leaflet. She certainly seemed to still be in the same jacket that she was in three years ago. (laughs) We need to get a new one. Well, 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 they need a new picture. (laughs) They're going to to need new leaflets. They've probably got a warehouse with you know millions of. (laughs) It's not going to be Jackson Carlos Mann and uh, and (laughs) no. Jackson Carlo party. Do they have any forties? That's going to have any forties on when a tank. (laughs) Sure can be. Sure can be arranged. But I mean, obviously that was their campaign. Kezia Dugdale came out and directed Labour voters to to vote Tory um, to stop the SNP, which was, you know, having lived through this Thatcher years, quite startling to see. Uh, Labour yeah, voters that was, that was voting like that and we weren't strong enough countering that and absolutely the 
you know, the turnout in my constituency went from 72% in 15 to about 65, 64%. Right. And a lot of that was our folk. It was a lashing day. Uh, our folk do not sign up for postal votes enough and therefore a lot just didn't do it, weren't fired up. It was the same with even getting activists out. It was very hard to get people to have heart in that yeah. election because they're going, what's this to do with us? You know, this is this is ridiculous. Whereas I think people can see this election is the foothills of the independence yeah. referendum. You know, the, the arguments, and the First Minister has been really clear about that, is it's Scotland's right to decide its future. Um, and that's that will be the focus. Of course, there'll be other policies in there, things that we're challenging them on, but front and centre will be it's our right to make that choice. Right. Um, and I'm hoping that will get our people out um, and that therefore, once people are out, we'll actually keep doing that. Because I get tired. I mean, I've been on the road for a year and a half, apart from my gammy leg over the, the over the summer. Yeah. Um, you know, and people go, oh, we're ready. We're ready. We're waiting. What is it you're waiting for? Every positive conversation you have, whether it's informal at work or with your neighbours and friends or because you're chapping doors, is another person that you've dropped a pebble into the pond and you've made them start to yeah. think. You're not browbeating them to go from no to yes in one conversation, but maybe you've just sown that little idea and then something else will add on to that. So people shouldn't be waiting. They should already be campaigning. I'm certainly hearing a lot of anecdotal reports. I mean, I know the plural of anecdote isn't data, but a, a, a lot of people that surprise me, actually, that you know people who are quite strongly know in 2014 and now they're kind of, oh, I don't know, or they've actually come over to yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that the, the runes are good. You know, there's a good vibe for the SNP and for the independence movement. With I, I, I think absolutely, and, and to be honest, the, the fact, you know, I mean, the, the, the power grab, they're taking control of 24 devolved areas to Westminster, and yet the Scottish Tories voted for that, voted them through well, yeah. on the night when, when we had the 15-minute speech from the government minister and no Scottish MP spoke, Labour abstained. You know, so people, there's lots of people don't believe in independence, but they believe in devolution and they recognise the benefits from our different health system, our different university, no tuition fees, etc. And and there are people who feel threatened by that. And there's also those that I know, friends who voted no, who are in the position of saying, you know, I, I was a fan of the UK. I really believed in the family of nations, but that UK that I believed in in 2014 well, yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So there's lots of people, if you were to do a poll of them, would you vote yes or no tomorrow? They would still say no, but they're on a journey. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the reasons when we're approaching people at the doors, we're actually going back to using the 1 to 10 scale. Because if you're a well-educated person saying you don't know makes you feel like you're saying you're stupid. Whereas just saying, where on this scale of 1 to 10 are you over, you know, over my dead body through to would already vote yes? That's a neutral thing. And then it becomes easier to have an idea of where on that journey people are. And I think that's quite a good way of, of just finding out, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll take a note of that. And therefore, that's the person you might 
write a letter to or come back what is what's your issue can I find some information for you and what are you seeing on the doorstep? Are you seeing people? There? Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 from both sides. Uh, mm-hmm. As I say, people who have a tendency to vote conservative but are shocked at Boris, shocked at prorogation, intimidated by No Deal, but also Labour people who are shocked at what a complete chocolate teapot Corbyn has been around Brexit. Oh, you know, if the <coughs> Labour Party had been an opposition over these last three years, we might have been able to build cross-party work at an earlier point. I mean, I've been part of the cross-party group of MPs since September 18. But, you know, there was wee handfuls of us, and and now it's a a much, much bigger group. But I remember challenging a, a Remain Tory. Why did you not vote for that motion on single market and customs union? And he said, well, why would I wreck my career when I don't even know if Labour are going to get mm. out of their benches. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't have that big number in the opposition benches that you can go, well, we've got that and we've got us and we've got the Liberals and we've got Plaid, you know, how many Tories will support us? And, and so Corbyn is as culpable in his own way. I think he's been a disaster, actually, as the opposition leader. But I wanted to get back to something that you, you mentioned earlier about people saying that they'd lost faith in the UK. And I've always thought that was very noticeable when I was looking at some of the stuff that was reported by um, Progress Scotland when they were talking about you know people journeying from from no to undecided or from from no to yes, and they were almost entirely talking about their lack of trust in the British state and the Britain that they thought that they were voting for in 2014 isn't the Britain that we've actually been delivered. And you, you're probably best known for the work that you do and probably what is, you know, the the shining star of the British state, if you like, the, the national health system, and how that's now under threat. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit more about that. Um, well, obviously I spoke about that in 2014, where in my speech I got the name of a hospital wrong, and therefore I get attacked all the time as being a liar. <laughs> Um, because people just focus on that and the articles that some local papers here in Glasgow did uh, accusing me of lying rather than looking at the rest of the speech and what was coming from the Health and Social Care Act uh, which the Tories and Liberals passed in 2012 and came in in 2013 and if you look at the performance of NHS England in things like waiting time in A&E you literally see the decay since that time And, and NHS England has been turned into a healthcare market. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge tracts of it are, are outsourced, particularly in, in the community side. And they are forced to be outsourced um, from the point of view of A&E weights and the services we provide from children's dental to hips, knees and eyes. Actually, it's NHS Scotland is way ahead in, in, in all four of them. And the problem is that where we are now, that threat is still there. I mean, there was uh, quite a lot of coverage on social media of a thing in England called NHS My Choice, which is they're rationing things like hips, knees and cataracts um, really seriously. And if you don't get over the very difficult threshold to get your hip replaced, you can actually have it done on the NHS, but you'll pay thousands of pounds for it. Now, as a surgeon, either you need it done and the NHS should be doing it, or you don't need it done clinically, in which case we don't just provide you an operation because you have a notion 
for an operation. And there was a hospital, I think it was Warrington Health Trust, was having posters <coughs> up in their clinics advertising, you know, I can't remember what it was, I think it was 18 grand for a hip and eight for a knee and this kind of stuff, up in their clinics and people taking photographs. So there was all that, oh, no, no, we're not going ahead with that. But that was part of the Health and Social Care Act. And it raised the limit. It used to be that NHS hospitals could make 2% of their income from private patients. That was raised to 49%. So while people go, oh, you said the NHS in England wouldn't exist, it is being eaten by moths all over the place. There are patients who can get one cataract done on the NHS, but they have to pay nearly £900 to get the second one done on the NHS. They get given one hearing aid, they have to pay for the other hearing aid. So there's all this kind of creeping payment for things, um, which is basically just rationing. And what you've also got is the appalling fragmentation um, because it isn't all NHS, so it doesn't link up. And it isn't just NHS versus a private company. It's NHS trusts against each other. So if you're competing, it becomes hard to cooperate. It becomes hard to you know, have nice, smooth patient pathways. Whereas we've managed to keep our single public NHS yeah. here in Scotland. Now, one of the threats at the moment is that public procurement is one of those 24 powers. And people ignore it because they've no idea what it means, but it's the how a government purchases or pays for or puts out contracts for public services. That power is being reserved to Westminster, although we have controlled it for 20 years. And in Scotland, we're very good at central procurement, buying CT scanners or radiotherapy machines or drugs centrally to get a good price and then deliver them out. In England, they don't have that very well developed. It's actually been something the Carter Report said they should do more of. But in America, things like NICE or the Scottish Medicines Consortium don't exist. Central procurement is illegal. And one of the things that Trump has said, whether the NHS itself is off or on the table, is he's determined to drive our drug prices up to the same level as in America. And that would mean multiplying the drugs budget by two and a half times. Well, some of the, the that is a huge increase in some, health costs. Some of the prices for drugs in America... Are, I was in America um, a couple of months ago. and I have psoriasis. And I'd forgotten to bring one of the creams that I use with me, which obviously I get here for free. It's called Dovonex. And it's a really good anti-psoriasis medication. And I thought, oh, I'll just buy some. So I thought I'll just buy something of here because of you know I don't have it with me. Seven hundred dollars. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I thought she. I thought she. I thought she said seven. And I was I, and, and 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 she went no seven hundred. It was seven hundred and thirty-five or something. Like that. I thought it was like seven dollars thirty-five cents. Seven hundred and thirty-five. So take it. You just went without. I just went without. <laughs> well, there's yeah. a group in America called Insulin for All, uh-huh. uh, where they go up over the Canadian border yeah. and try and buy insulin yeah. in Canada. Mm. And one Bernie of the women Sanders who was yes, he spoke yeah. at one of mm. their um, one of their kind of rallies in Canada. Mm. And one of the women she was talking about her son who is a type one diabetic, and his insulin costs twelve hundred dollars a month, and that is their biggest outgoing. 
and so sometimes they can't pay for the electricity mm. or anything else and then they discovered that he was sort of rationing his insulin which is not safe because he was conscious of the burden on on the family and you know there's no point in blaming us why not have some central procurement why not have more of a public health system in america they spend over five thousand dollars a head and yet 40 percent of people have no cover they are the highest per citizen spend on health and yet it's actually full of gaps of people it's not just they don't get treated a lot of the time they won't even get diagnosed But also, I mean, even if you do have health insurance in America, you have to pay quite a lot of money because there's, there's you know, there's, there's a, what they call a copay, yeah. or usually about fifteen percent. Exactly. Every time you go to the doctor, you've got to pay so much. Um, my partner, he had to go to the hosp- the doctor uh, a year ago. He's still paying it off. Mm. You know, he had a suspected heart scare, mm-hmm. and he's still paying off the bill, even though he's got good health insurance. And a lot of people, I think, are really worried about the effect of Brexit on the health service in Scotland. And will Scotland still be able to resist that kind of creeping privatisation that you've described in England? Will we be able to resist that after Brexit? Well, I think the immediate threats of Brexit are things like workforce is number Uh one, Uh, our EU colleagues uh, who may go home, or even if they don't, um, when they retire, we will struggle to replace them. I mean, there's been a 90 Nine zero percent drop in European nurses coming. That is an enormous impact. Uh, things like medicines. I mean, I've been raising things like medicines and radioisotopes for three years. Um, people are only really responding to that now in in the context of a no deal. But actually, borders even with a deal will will be slower. We lose the right of pensioners to get health care in the south of France or Spain many of them couldn't afford to take health insurance and therefore they may have to move home and some of them if you've suddenly got a whole lot of flats going on the market in Spain the market will crash, they may not sell their home so they could be back back here looking for housing as well as health and social care so you could suddenly have these kind of things and at the moment your EHEC card allows even someone in renal failure to go away for a week and have their dialysis three times. There's no travel insurance going to cover these kind of things. So so there's these immediate losses. And obviously, a lot of what the 24 powers are, if you look at all of them, fishing, farming, food standards, uh-huh. food safety, food labelling, it's all about doing a trade deal with Trump. And they will definitely be wanting to get in about the health service, particularly in England. But they could challenge us as the Scottish border being a non-tariff barrier and and demanding uh, access. They cannot force the UK to have an insurance-based system. But if you look down all of those who are leading the Conservative Party at the moment, your IDSs and so on and Farage and others, they're all on record at some point of saying, oh, we need to change the NHS to an insurance system. And... You know, as you say, in America, you have to pay about 15%. I remember someone putting up the bill for having their appendix out, and it was $55,000. And, you know, 15% of that is a real shocker for someone who wasn't expecting it. And actually, even in some of the European systems, you also have to pay uh, a proportion. So even though you've got a kind of non-profit, state-controlled insurance you often have a gap that that you have to pay. So all of those do not compete 
with what we have and what we've managed to protect in Scotland. So it's not that Trump can march over here and say, right, you have to change to insurance system. But more and more American companies will get in about NHS England. They will be more litigious. I mean, there were six commissioning groups in Surrey who tried to take community services back into the NHS. They weren't breaking a contract. The contract was ended and they went, you know, this hasn't worked. We're going to we're just going to go back to NHS. And Virgin sued them. And they ended up settling out of court for over £2 million. Yeah. So that's money that's not being spent on patients. I think you're going to see more of that. You will see big, bullish American companies in around NHS England. And then they will be looking at, well, legally, can we say, well, this is a unitary state. Uh, that bit up there does not have the right to to resist us. We need to be able to bid for contracts. And if Westminster is controlling public procurement, they suddenly have the power to say, in future, all public contracts must be put out to tender. This is the new UK framework. So something we've held out against for years, we don't know if they'll do it, but suddenly they're taking the power to do it. And that really gives me uh, concern. Yeah, and one of the other concerns is that the UK will be negotiating from a position of weakness. Oh, absolutely. You They'll know, be going over there in their they, hands they, and knees. They seem to have this kind of fantasy that, you know, that they're still the British Empire and, you know, Britannia rules the waves. But, you know, it's the United Kingdom is a medium-sized European country. It's not, it doesn't have the economic or political heft of somewhere like the United States or even China or, or, or India all of whom are going to be saying, well, if you want a trade deal with us, then these are the conditions. Well, if you if you look at the GDP, uh, America is biggest, followed by Europe, followed by China. Yeah. So when people go, oh, we're going back to the Commonwealth, if you actually, the G- GDP, although India is a huge country and growing, the GDP in comparison to those three blocks is, is still quite small. So even if, if you have a trade deal with India and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and all the kind of Commonwealth family, it, it doesn't remotely come near to what you're losing. And the thing is, we will absolutely be going as supplicants. And if you read the trade papers from America, their number one demand is to get rid of protected geographic indicators. They demand that the protection on Scotch whisky should be removed and that they should be able to sell their whisky as Scotch. Now, obviously, that is not just Scotland's biggest food and drink export. It's actually the UK's biggest food and drink export. So the losses from the uniqueness, I mean, it has to be made in Scotland to be Scotch. So well, you the clues, get rid the clues of in the name. Yes, but you you get rid of that and suddenly you lose the jobs that are in distilleries that keep rural parts of Scotland, some of Scotland's islands going. Um, and suddenly it becomes well okay we can actually make Lagavulin anywhere and we're still going to be able to call it Scotch. So that is a huge threat along with obviously losing the the other Scotch beef, Scotch lamb, etc. So they're very against that, and clearly they will be pushing their produce into our market. I'm not convinced that there are enormous uh, goods that we're going to suddenly get into their market that we're not getting in now. So the obviously question that we always have to ask, don't we, Cal? Yep. Yep. What do you think? When do you think Indirev 2 is going to be? 
Well, as we're, I... we're contractually obliged to answer that. That's question. fine. I totally understand. It. There's <laughs> lots of listeners who've been waiting half an hour for. Uh, just to ask her about that question. Question. For God's for sake, question. get on with it. <laughs> well, E. It's above my pay grade, so I'm not going to be uh-huh. able to give you the answer. Um, that one will come from the First Minister. I hope it will be soon. Um, I know that, obviously, there's talk about having it before autumn next year, I think, if there is a no deal. And I know there are yesers who think, oh, a no deal, that'll be great. But actually, a no deal leaves all sorts of challenges for us to deal with afterwards. So, actually, you know, having... England and Wales or just England or whatever it turns out to be in in a closer relationship with Europe is is quite important for us so I will continue to fight for that but I do not want it to to go on too long because particularly if it is a no deal at the end of next month I would not want that hardship and horror to be hitting people in Scotland and therefore I would hope that we would be uh, going forward as, as quickly as practicable I mean obviously they have to finish the the getting the bill through, getting things set up. Um, I would say in the meantime... We have to get this election out of the way as well. We do, but as I say, I think that's the foothills because you're talking to people in the doors, you're still having the conversation about independence because that will be in the middle of our manifesto and therefore you're already moving people. So it's not like, oh, we do that work and then we come back and do independence uh-huh. campaign work. One literally leads into the other. Um, and at the moment, we are still, what is more important is the why of independence than the when. So all those people who are sitting going, I'm ready, call it, I'll come out. You know, I would like to see the polls higher. So maybe if more of our SNP activists and YES supporters were talking to more people and moving more people, then we would see those polls moving quicker. I think that there'll come a point where you suddenly have that supporting independence is normalised for people who voted no last time um, and, and that you'll suddenly get an acceleration of support and I think that will be quite important having a strong return of SNP MPs to demand a Section 30 having the polls moving having people accepting that as the norm and when you look at that poll of Tory voters yes. you know 63% of them don't give a tuppenny toss whether Scotland remains in the Union if they can get Brexit 59% would happily see Northern Ireland go so the whole precious Union is actually predominantly unrequited love from people up here who, who find it very precious <laughs> but actually Tories down there frankly don't care mm, that's a good way of um, it, and, well, well it is you know and, and I mean certainly well it may have been important to Theresa May. It's not remotely important to Boris Johnson. So if ever he was looking and had an eye to the main chance and thought it was an advantage to him, then you know he would throw Scotland and Northern Ireland overboard in you know a blink of an eye, basically. Well, let's hope he does it quickly. Uh, and, <laughs> and the way to get to the other question is, wh- why would they not just keep refusing the Section 30 order request? So how do you get around that conundrum that, that the UK government basically doesn't have to. And the other thing they're doing this week, of course, is uh, is trying to rig <laughs> almost everything. Oh, we're, yeah, seeing, yeah, yeah. we're seeing lots of <coughs> two-thirds. and are going to change uh, the question. But I think that's a sign of complete desperation. Yeah, I think I that's don't... actually a sign of the fact yeah. that they're moving. You know, <laughs> um, 
we have precedent for this. It was agreed in, in 2012 and, and it went ahead. You know, if we're going back with 50 SNP MPs, if we're seeing polls that are at 55, 60% supporting independence and we are demanding a section of... Th- I mean, they just end up on thinner and thinner ice. And, and the support to have the referendum has also been growing. I mean, mm. even John Curtis commented on that. So it just becomes harder and harder for them to justify it. Whereas every time we were raising it in the House, Theresa May could go, oh, you lost 21 seats last time, therefore there isn't the demand, there isn't the support. If we reverse that this time, then that gives us a much stronger voice. Mm -hmm. Of course, we can't make it happen, but I think it just becomes more and more undemocratic and harder for them to to maintain that. But it's important, you know, our First Minister is getting huge recognition within the EU for being one of the remaining states people in the UK. Um, you know, she looks like the calm grown-up. And why would you want to, with the kind of madness and mayhem and just breaking the rules in Westminster by Boris Johnson, you don't want to match that with the same... We want to be telling people who voted no, who we didn't convince the last time, you know, we are approaching this in a calm and democratic way. Now, it may well be, and I am sure that people are looking at what other routes and ways you have, but why should we let them off and say, well, we're going to do a, we're going to do a referendum that will just spend a decade in the courts mm-hmm. um, rather than pushing you to do what's mm-hmm. right? And at the moment where we are at the moment, it's putting the maximum pressure on them. And the mere fact that they're suddenly going, we're going to change the rules. And there's actually a report out from one of the human rights bodies in Europe talking about having a a turnout threshold like they had in 79 is wrong because everyone who didn't vote and everyone who is dead gets counted on one side of the argument. And having a high threshold like two thirds, Mm -hmm. you could have a convincing win but you haven't got over the threshold and therefore you you create all of this conflict and friction. So suddenly the majority of people support an action, but that majority is not going to be enacted. Um, So I I think the mere fact that they're coming out with all of this nonsense and and the Scotland in Union poll where they used remain and leave, I'm sorry, those words are now so utterly tied to the EU. The EU referendum isn't a model for anybody to copy. it, It isn't, but you cannot use those words because people define themselves as leavers and remainers. And I would think that one of the reasons they got that poll result is there have been people who thought they were being asked about the EU. Um, And certainly you would create confusion. So regardless of what our question is and how the question is answered, it cannot be that. So to me, the mere fact they're coming up with all of this rubbish is that they are, we will never give you... uh, you know, a second independence referendum, they realise they're on thin ice. And and all three of the unionist parties are are frankly in a, an indefensible position. Well, the, the Particularly Lib the Liberals. The Lib, the Lib <laughs> Neither Liberal yeah. nor Democratic. No, I, mean, I, I just bumped into Joe Swinson. She was, In doing an interview with the Herald, not us. Naturally enough. But I mean, you know, I want to stop Brexit. But the idea that you would just revoke Article 50 
without any democratic procedure that led to that. I think it was Channel 4 News and she was going on about how, oh, we have to have another, you know, it's it's perfectly correct to revisit the result of the EU referendum because, Mm. I mean, there's all these people that were too young to vote. Crazy. You know, and and all the, I mean, it's... Well, I, I exactly. heard her, it's all applied to the, the Scottish independence Absolutely, referendum and well. I heard her say, well, you know, the reason we have to do that is the sheer threat to the UK of Brexit. So we need to take sort of radical action. But there's no threat to Scotland oh, well, no, by the UK. Well, what no, Brexit no, Britain well, isn't a problem for Scotland. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, she's yeah. like Janice, you know, yeah. her, her faces are going in the opposite direction. And if you watch any of her interviews with a decent interviewer, She's just writhing on a spit, basically. Well, it's, 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 it's a ridiculous position. It's a it ridiculous is. position. But, but what do you think? I mean, what I've suspected for quite a while, and I was wondering what your comments are on this, I think there's an awful lot of people who are still kind of harbouring the hope that Brexit won't happen. Because it hasn't happened yet, and we're still in this kind of limbo territory. And there's certainly people like, you know, um, Joe Swinson, um, who's saying, you know, but we don't want people to have to choose between the EU and the United Kingdom. But once Brexit has happened, do you think perhaps that may focus minds? And people will realise, well, you know, we are now out of the EU, so it's independence. And that, I think, might switch people. Well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, if there is a Northern Ireland-only backstop-type deal, uh, which I think is the only kind of deal that Boris Johnson could get because I don't think the EU will throw Ireland overboard Um, and and that went through then you do start to have a transition period you're out of the EU you no longer have MEPs you no longer have a voice and it is clear that that's where you're going but you have a period of transition and I've certainly had uh, European diplomats say to me before you know we will bring Scotland in very quickly we will you know be waiting to bring you in out of transition and I think you'll also see a further change in tone from Europe when the UK is no longer a member Uh, and I think that will will influence people. But yes, I mean, there, I mean, I'm part, as I said, of a cross-party group trying to get a second referendum, trying to see uh, are there ways out of this? Because you know, we've all got family and friends down in England. We don't actually want them to go down the tubes no. with a no-deal Brexit. Uh, and similarly, if we're setting off as a young independent country, being tied onto an elephant that's going over the cliff isn't exactly ideal for us. So we would still work for that. But I think the chances of Brexit not happening are now very small. Yeah. And I think if, I mean, I don't think it's going to be Joe Swinton as Prime Minister, but if something <laughs> like that happened and they did just revoke, I think you would have violence on the streets. You know, it, it's it's much cooler up here. Um, but, I mean, I've worked in Belfast, I've worked in Gaza, I've worked in Lebanon, you know, but when you're in there as an MP and you're hearing literally mobs outside shouting and bawling and smashing things down and you're being told by the police you can't go out of any of those exits and, you know, you, you need to make sure you're not recognisable and all that kind of stuff, I, I think that you could literally have just a complete loss yeah. of... of Civil control in in you know from well, has already, the far right I mean, and from there, there from has been the a kind of resurgence and what what the, it pleases the BBC to call sectarian violence in Scotland, but it's not it's it's I mean there's always been a tradition as you well know of of loyalist parades and republican parades in Glasgow. The difference is that now loyalists are actively campaigning against 
the Republican parades, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what's causing the violence. So I, f- I feel they have been emboldened by Brexit and the rise of the right, and that, that I think is a very. And I think also we saw that um, you know coming up in 2014 as well Uh, and you know we saw Ruth Davidson kind of encouraging and linking her party with uh, you know with some of these groups which I I think is really unfortunate for any uh, politician to do I think what's going to happen tomorrow is unfortunate I think the idea that the police would say we let parades go ahead because they're threatening violence That's, if we don't yeah. um, is, is, is kind of worrying. I mean, I think a perfectly reasonable thing would be say, right, you all get one, you get one parade a year. When do you want it? What's the route? We'll work out, we'll accommodate you. As opposed to that, whatever it is, six tomorrow is is bizarre and obviously that's different the kind of sectarian thing in west of scotland is different from what you would see in england where it's just very much about brexit and about the far right in a general sense and an anti-foreigner thing but but obviously you can still end up with the, the same heat and i also feel since the um you know offensive behavior at football act was repealed now it might have need needed reformed because it wasn't functioning very well, but the repeal of it, I think, has sent the wrong message. And certainly my impression is that the sectarianism uh, as a problem, we've gone backwards in Scotland since that happened, and I I find that sad. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, as always, and we hope we'll have you back. Yeah, Um, because then we don't need to do any work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, poor Callum hardly got any word in edge. No, no, that's that's absolutely fine. I was was very good at not interrupting you, I thought. Except the once. (laughs) Except the once when you did. Well, except the once. (laughs) Except when I did interrupt him. So, what have we got coming up in the coming week? Oh, I don't know. I'm Um, going to Straven, SNP branch, or West, yes, mm -hmm. branch, sorry, in Straven on Wednesday. So, I'll be speaking to you. We've got the the second edition of uh, the second episode of the papers, the BBC documentary on us and on the newsroom, which has been very very well received. Where you finally get to get a word. He does. No one interrupts him. (laughs) That's quite incredible. And yeah, although although the podcast with you and me is next week, so, so I'll probably so you probably interrupt me on that. Because <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. a very nice shot of the dog in it. Actually. There is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're in it. You, I, I said this last week. It counts shows off. Uh, counts yeah, one yeah. to ten in Gaelic, just, <laughs> just for the cameras for some yeah. bizarre reason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I used to be able to do that in Irish Gaelic. Yeah. <laughs> I think the I dog, of course, I is lying here completely crushed And that's the other thing I'm doing on Friday of. Next week, I will be in Arran and I'll be talking about Gaelic and Scots. Fantastic. So, yeah, so, if you have heard any kind of rumbling or rustlings in the background, that has been Ginger creeping yeah, about the studio. Kind of getting a bit fed yeah. up. Or hands parked on the yeah. sofa <laughs> doing his uh, <laughs> yes, Sudoku. Cool. All right. So we well, thank you very much. Pictures, but yeah. Thank you very much for coming in. Hobbling in on my sticks. She broke her leg and for the cause. She broke her leg for the cause. Well, in the line of duty as That's an MP, I think. She was trying to copy Boris Johnson and doing a zip line. That's what it was. If he was just a bit closer <laughs> in the chamber, I could probably just smack him over the yeah, head. Yeah, I would, I would pay to see that. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a crowdfunder, Callum. Let's do a crowdfunder. Get yep. him to do that. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for coming in. You're welcome. And uh, it was really appreciated.